the Buddha gave a lot of emphasis to us understanding what it is that clouds our hearts, our minds' capacity for clarity, for brightness, what it is that camouflages our hearts' capacity for insight, for spaciousness, the qualities we long for. And what it is that can seem to sabotage and hijack our intentions. I think it's probably quite rare, might happen sometimes, but it's probably quite rare that any of us, for example, comes into the hall or into a walking period with the intention to daydream for 45 minutes or think, oh yes, a wonderful, I've got 45 minutes to obsess. You know, most of us actually don't come with those intentions. Most of us come with the intentions to cultivate whatever clarity, whatever serenity, whatever brightness we can. And yet we see how easily that intentionality seems to get undermined and hijacked, mostly by psychological, emotional habits. And some of these psychological, emotional habits are mental states, actually, that are both personal and universal. And suddenly when the Buddha investigated his own mind, he saw this cluster of mental states that had a particularly powerful impact upon that capacity to see clearly. Called these the obscurations or the veiling factors, and I'm sure we've all touched into them one way or another over the retreat so far the fatigue, the tiredness, the sloth that we spoke about yesterday, the dullness, the agitation and worry again that we touched upon yesterday, the craving for sensual pleasure, the aversion, the pushing away, and the doubt. We see how these these mental states run through much of our lives. In fact, when we look at any uh, psychological, emotional storm, any time of contractedness in our life, we're actually going to be able to see these states of mind at play. They are big ones. And I think we should never underestimate them. I think old students sometimes hear us talk about them, their eyes glaze over and think, oh, yeah, I know about these. Well, actually, if we really knew about them, they actually wouldn't be happening. So it's really, but they are not something to get over. They are states of mind to understand, really to understand. And certainly in in the Buddhist thinking, these five mental states, They both interact with each other, but they are actually the five manifestations of the three big ones, greed, hatred, delusion, get manifested in these five particular mental states in one form or another. So it would not be an accurate sort of assessment of them to think, well, my practice begins after these go away. These are so built into the fabric of our minds, our hearts, our lives. They so need attending to, so need attending to, not to get rid of, but to not be imprisoned. And it's so interesting in a day 
when you look at what moves your mind, when you look at what moves your body, when you look at the moments when your intentionality feels to be undermined, to really see if you can see the impact in there of, you know, this kind of dullness, salt and torpor, or agitation and worry, or aversion, or craving for sensual pleasure, or doubt. Often our whole lives are kind of pushed around by these mental states. So important to be able just to gently notice them and to know that there are antidotes. <laughs> you know, it's not as if we are helpless. Certainly in this teaching, the whole journey to awakening is very much revolves around uprooting the hold of these particular emotional mental states. We talked yesterday about working with dullness, around working with sloth and torpor, cultivating intentionality, cultivating brightness within them. Talked about agitation and worry, being aware it's fed by thought, it's fed by thought. There's something about learning to calm the mind, to calm the thinking, to not engage in the thoughts that arise. The craving for sensual pleasure has so many dimensions, you know, it's the fantasies, the daydreams, it's the fascination with the notice board, it's, you know, the need to make contact with someone, it's, you know, the, the, just the, you know, the second plate of food I never wanted in the first place, you know, it, it's the entertainment thinking, it's that need to be somehow fed, you know, resting on often a very kind of core belief of not enough in this moment. Hmm. You know, the aversion we spot in terms of our thought patterns, judging, blaming, comparing, jealousy, envy, you know, all of the kind of pushing away, impatience, frustration, all of this is under the umbrella of that kind of ill will or aversion. Not unfamiliar visitors in our life that do very little but really, really do distort our heart's capacity for kindness and connectedness and softness and empathy and compassion. Again, thought is a big one here. You know, the, the, these, so many of these mental states rely upon being fed like a fire relies upon fuel being thrown on it. It is why we suggest, you know, we have a focus to return to. Because in that moment, there are choices being made about what we are feeding. And as I mentioned last night, what we feed will grow. So we have a focus to return to, to step back from that momentum of feeding with thought some of the states that they arise. It's not that they shouldn't arise. They are welcome within mindfulness. But mindfulness is also a very engaged practice. It's not just seeing, but it's about really what is being fed. Doubt is a big one. Some of you may not have unpacked your suitcase yet. You know. It's kind of like, let me see, you know, give me a day or two, you know, figure out whether this is for me or not, you know. Doubt makes us waver. Have you seen that, how it makes us wobble in intentionality? That kind of lack of confidence that I was speaking about last night. And there's no, you know, there's no conceptual answer for doubt. I mean, we could have a long, long conversation with ourselves, you know, trying to convince ourselves that this is or not for us. And we always end up in the same place of replaying that conversation, even doubting our own convictions. I think sometimes with doubt, we just place our feet in the ground and we see this is where we are. 
Mindfulness certainly turns these mental states into objects of practice, the places where we develop calmness, insight, kindness, patience, compassion, not to be so swayed by every passing mental state. It is a big lesson for our lives. The way that we will be shaping the practice here over these days is, is within the, this very pivotal teaching of, of the Satipatthana discourse, the four foundations of mindfulness. It's, it's a roadmap for awakening. In fact, in the beginning of this discourse, you know, it's stated very clearly, this is a direct path to the end of suffering, to the liberation of the heart. It is something that is cultivated. Now, yesterday, Narayan also began to introduce this first foundation of mindfulness, the body, being mindful of the body, and this very, very particular relationship to the body. As Narayan mentioned yesterday, to see the body as the body or to see the body in the body. The whole practice begins from this kind of relationship of non-identification, to see the body as it is. So recognizing that the tendency to identify, the tendency to cling, to hold, to grasp, is a tendency that actually creates so much suffering in our lives. So to see the body as the body, Many of the lessons learned within mindfulness of the body are the lessons that we bring to mindfulness of emotions, of thoughts, of mind. In fact, to every area of our life, I really see the body as the training ground. The training ground. Because we see that actually the body is usually not a place where there's non-clinging that the story of our body is very often felt to be the story of ourself. It is a personal story. We all have our own very individual encounters with illness, with loss, with aging, with change. We look around us and we see everybody in this room, every woman in this room is meeting those same encounters. It doesn't diminish our own encounters, the uniqueness of them. But there is something about knowing the nature of the body as the body, as as a formation that in this world of conditions is as vulnerable, as changing as any other formation in this world of conditions. To make peace with that is a very big piece in our life. To be able to make peace with what the body moves through in this life is is a recipe for great inner calmness and well-being. The Buddha once said that everything that needs to be understood can be understood within the length of this body. So, what are we learning? What are we learning? Well, within the body, within mindfulness of the body, we learn the lessons of intentionality. We learn the lessons about being able to sustain our attention, being able to stay near to, to stay close to, to be present within. This is a great ally in our lives. Rather than fleeing, rather than always running or or getting lost, to be able to sustain attention. 
somehow within the body we begin often so slowly to learn the lessons of impermanence. We see sensations arise, they change, they pass. The pain in the body that we're sure is going to be there forever changes into something else. The pleasant sensation in the body we'd like to be there forever changes into something else. We see actually that, you know, if I was really, if the body was really me, I would have a lot more control over what's going on. It's not so. It's not so. Like everything in the, every formation in life, impermanence, the thread of change, runs through this body. Within that, we learn something about equanimity. We learn something about being able to be equally near to all the bodily events, all the bodily experiences with kindness, seeing them just as they are. We learn a lot about the difference between concept and actuality. This is so important. We see that the sensation in the body and the reaction in the mind to the sensation in the body is not exactly the same thing. This, last year, when I, I, I remember so clearly, I was having some eye surgery and you know, you're awake and all this stuff. And I remember the thought, I had the thought, this is awful. But then I thought, is it? You know, like I didn't actually feel anything. But the thought was there, this is awful. The truth is, I was totally numb, my eye was totally numbed out. So different, the concept and the actuality, and how often we get caught in the concept and then don't stay with what is actually happening. Within the body, we learn a lot about severing this connection that seems so automatic between pain and aversion. Have you noticed that? You have a pain in your knee or your back or a tightness in your neck, and you feel the flinch so fast, you know. I'm out of here. But what we see is that the aversion is building an extra layer of pain upon what is already painful. And there is something with mindfulness about being able to soften that flinch moment and to come back to what is. Not to endure, but to be able to investigate, to explore, and to see that the unpleasant, whether it is in the body or elsewhere in our life, that this automatic reaction of aversion is something that is optional and may actually be the very reaction that suffocates our capacity for kindness, for compassion, for our capacity to accommodate, to be with what is, learning to sever that reaction. I think one of the big lessons that we learn in the body is we learn how much our bodies are actually registering the mental states that come and go. If you notice that, you know, if you're feeling a bit restless, you know, I'm charging through this place, you know, it doesn't matter what's, what's in front of me, you know. You can see the body moving with the restlessness. Suddenly there's so much to do, places to go, things to do. There's actually really so little to do here, but we can actually make so much to do here. The, body, the restlessness is moving the body. If you notice when there's aversion, the impact on the body, the tightness, the tensing, the contracting. You know, have you noticed like if, like if, if uh, the craving for sensual pleasure is, is present in the body, how the eyes and the ears suddenly get very hungry? You know, we're looking for something to make contact with, to entertain us. 
Dullness, of course, registers very quickly in the body, you know, the great slump. There's something about seeing how that this mind and body integration, seeing that registering of mental states, emotions within the body, actually being able just to come back to the body sensation of that is a way of finding some space within those emotions, within those mental states, where they're not so dominant, not so governing. So to see the body as the body. Sitting, walking, standing, lying down, moving through the day, being able to come to the back to the body. One as one way of doing that, as as Narayan spoke about yesterday, if it's helpful, is to anchor within the breathing. But it's the body breathing. It's not just this breath. The body breathing, the body rising, the body feeling falling, breathing into the whole of the body, breathing out from the whole of the body. Sometimes a way of being mindful of the body is is simply to be aware of these postural changes during the day, or even in the sitting, to sit with the whole awareness of the entire body, the body sitting, the contact points, the pressure from the contact points. And then if the mind starts to get a little scattered, it's helpful to focus more specifically upon the breathing and perhaps again being able to open out. But bringing this gentle, this kind mindfulness into the body as the body through the day. It is an anchor, it is a way of integrating mind, body and present moment, moment to moment, calming the formations. So again, just just settling into a posture that feels easeful and upright, relaxed. Perhaps being aware if there's any particular emotional state or mental state that is registering in your body right now. If there's any sense of contractedness anywhere in your body, of tightness, if in your body there's any sense of agitation, of restlessness, If you can sense in your body if there's any signals, any marks of dullness or heaviness. And within all the emotions, the mental states, the thoughts, to establish a posture that feels upright, deeply relaxed, calm. Perhaps just sensing inwardly 
all of the different sensations, the spectrum of sensations arising and passing within your body. Noticing just how they change, how they move. Mindful of the touch of your clothing, the touch of the air on your skin. The sounds that come to your ears. Within all of this, cultivating a calm, kind, a curious mindfulness. If it's helpful to you, establishing that mindfulness within the body, breathing.
noticing as much as you're able to the moments when your attention departs from the body, where it lands. It's a simple knowing of that and a renewal of the intention to come back to be within the body as the body.
So just a few things about the day today um, to be sure to look for your name on the board and to come to your interview group if your name is there. And um, we'd appreciate you coming on time. Um, There's a little bit of time now to go to the bathroom or get a drink or stretch or whatever, but um, if everybody could show up on time, that would be really just great. No need to rehearse or make a big deal about these groups. I always am so amused at the word interview because you're not being interviewed. You know, we want you all. We love you all. Um, It's not, we're not going to say you don't deserve to be here. So it's really a chance to check in and to articulate what's going on for you. And it basically just has to do with what's been going on during this retreat. So it's very simple. It's kind of a matter of come as you are, you know, not as you want to be or think you should be or think others think you should be or anything like that. Just to come as you are and to relax. And there's a guided loving-kindness, metta, boundless friendliness uh, practice this afternoon at 2.15, so just to know that. And we very much want to encourage you to work with the walking in a very kind of committed and dedicated way. I think that over the years, it's changed a lot. Christina and I didn't used to talk about the walking quite as much as we have in recent years. And I guess we just kind of expected everybody would do it. And um, you could easily think that it isn't as important as the sitting because uh, the interview groups are in the walking periods. So you might think, oh, you know, if the interview, why aren't they in the, the sitting period? So the walkings aren't as important. But if you can connect with the walking, it's just incredible in terms of a seamlessness in one's practice. You know, it takes a lot of effort and energy, but it really is so fruitful if you do that. But I think, you know, we, it's, it's different. I remember years ago my younger sister coming to visit me here, and she just visited for a day, a day and a half, and um, she was trying to do the schedule of sitting and walking and sitting and walking for the first time. So I told her to go down and do the walking. She went downstairs to the lower walking hall, and um, she came back up and she said, where is everybody? Yeah, and there were 100 people here at that point, because nobody was walking. So things have changed. We see people walking. You know you're walking. Walking is occurring. Um, Just to recognize how important it is. And in the walking practice, to move from the walking to the sitting, sitting to the walking without fussing about it, really just being quite clear with one's intention, there's a real impeccability. And that's what we're interested in, is not forcing or striving or becoming, but impeccable present moment attentiveness. One will have a fantastic retreat. It's guaranteed, even if you have a lousy time. It's guaranteed if there is this impeccable present moment attentiveness. So this is really from our hearts to yours. Thank you so much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.